So as I mentioned earlier, I came from outside the policy world. And uh, when I was asked to uh, become president of Cato, I arrived in Washington and I was, I guess I was still idealistic, um, trying to brainstorm some ideas. And I spoke to a colleague and said, hey, what if we had an idea for financial deregulation, where if a bank bought put options on its stock, and therefore kind of hedged its capital, you know, maybe we could release it from all the burdensome regulation that it um, is designed to protect its capital base. And my colleague said, no one on Capitol Hill will understand that except Jeb Henserling. <laughs> we, uh, Cato has had a long association with, uh, with Congressman Henserling, and I hope that he will maybe tell the story of when that association began. I'm not going to steal it. I'm going to hope that he, that he tells it. Um, but uh, Congressman Henserling, you know, really in, in, uh, in my adult life has been one of the more consequential uh, members of Congress and had a very close working relationship with Cato during the three terms that he headed the House Financial Services Committee. And I think there was a really great uh, relationship there of, uh, you know, you, you've told me that your favorite witness was my predecessor, John Allison, um, to call for testimony, but also I think a lot of, uh, a lot of brainstorming and idea generation, um, you know, some of which was able to move forward and some of which just faced the kind of, uh, I wouldn't even say political realities, I think some of it would have, would have uh, moved forward, some really big and exciting things could have happened if only, um, you know, there was unified government at the time. Um, but I'm really delighted that um, Congressman Henserling called me a couple of years ago, and unlike so many members of Congress, in fact, I'll t I, I'm not going to personalize this, but uh, there's a former senator, a Republican senator, who lives in my apartment building in Washington, and shortly after I arrived, he, he, it, we, we bumped into one another, I introduced myself and said I was the president of Cato. And he said, you know, I used, to be, I used to do a lot of work with Cato when I was a staffer, and then uh, when I was in a, a lot of work together, a lot of collaboration when I, when I was in the House, and when I moved to the Senate, a little bit less, and then, you know, when I went into leadership, you know, I really didn't deal with Cato all that much, and I thought that was like, the, that, that just said it all about what decades in, uh, in Washington will do, do for you, and... Um, you know, uh, Jeb Henserling did not, uh, did not uh, aspire to be an 80 or 85-year-old member of Congress or the Senate. Uh, he has a uh, pr productive employment. He has a beautiful family. His wife, Melissa, is with us today. Um, and he, so he, he left Congress. And a little while after he left, he called me up and said, hey, look, I still want to have um, a part of this fight. I still want to work for liberty. And we, we talked about it for a while and, and uh, decided that a collaboration made sense. And late last year, we named him an, a senior fellow. And we actually call him an economics fellow because it clearly um, indicates you know, his area of expertise and, and, and where we do most of our uh, collaboration. And now that he is regularly appears in the Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed pages with his, uh, with his Cato affiliation, we're, we're really proud of that. And uh, been, been really a pleasure to, uh, to get to know him and, uh, and Melissa and looking forward to uh, his remarks today. Please uh, join me in welcoming Congressman Jeb Henserling. Well, good afternoon, everybody. 
Peter, thank you. A very, very kind introduction. I see some of you are still finishing your lunch. Please, please finish your lunch. Please know, having served in Congress for 16 years, I'm very accustomed to speaking and having absolutely no one pay attention to anything I have to say. <laughs> Which is another way of saying there's nothing you can do to, uh, to insult me here. Um, well, Peter, I'm glad you haven't grown tired of hearing my story, but it does have the convenience of being true. I do have a very, very long affiliation, if you will, with um, Cato. I, I, I wish I could recall exactly who first introduced me to Cato, but I will say this. When I was an undergraduate economics major at Texas A&M University in the late 70s, I know that's when I was first introduced to Cato. And somebody shared with me then one of their quarterly journals. And I wanted, I, I was just captivated by the research. And I finally figured out I could receive this quarterly journal, but it cost $25 a year. And I think that was the cost to be a sustaining member so I did the budget because I was working my way through college at the time. But I decided, as opposed to investing that money at the Dixie Chicken, which was the local watering hole, I decided instead I would invest it to be a sustaining member of Cato and receive their quarterly journal. Now, you may not know this, Peter, but I went back and I did the research. And in 1977, a six-pack of beer cost $2.47. <laughs> so basically, I cared enough about Cato to give up almost a six-pack a month. That shows you how committed I was. But in all seriousness, I mean, Cato educated me in my youth. Um, when I became a congressman, Cato trained me to be a congressman with their new members and their candidates' handbook. As chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, their scholarship helped enable me to deal with corporate welfare, deregulation, trying to repeal Dodd-Frank and all the other work I engaged in. And now, Peter, thank you very much. What an honor that in some small way now I can give back and hopefully add to all the scholarship that for so many years taught me, enabled me, and for that I'm very, very appreciative. Um, I noticed other speakers uh, knew what they were going to talk about apparently weeks, if not months ago. I didn't. But I must admit, over the last three weeks, I read three different stories in the media, and these stories informed me and helped me decide on what my topic would be. And after I go through the three stories, you may be able to figure it out yourself. Story number one, headline, the campaign to ban gas stoves. <laughs> Wall Street Journal, January 26. I take it from the chuckles, everybody is very, very familiar that one member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission had dinged it upon himself to start engaging in 
a notice of rulemaking to decide that your gas stove was no longer safe. One person in Washington, D.C., fortunately, a little bit of the disinfectant of sunshine got in there. That idea was pushed back at the Consumer Product Safety Commission. But once they left it, it was picked up by the, um, uh, boy, I'll see, and I forget, part of the Department of Energy to decide that all of a sudden our gas stoves were not uh, efficient enough. And so now there's a rulemaking going forward to still take your gas stove out of your house. Again, one individual has decided this. So I don't know if there's any Texans in the room. Yeah, I'm not seeing it, so. All right, we got one, we got one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So there's a very famous flag in Texas history called the Gonzales flag. It was the first flag of the Texas Revolution. And on the flag, you see a cannon in the middle of the flag, and at top it says, come and take it. It's kind of our version of don't tread on me. It dates back to when the Mexicans were trying to take a cannon from the Texians, and the Texians fired it at them. So all of a sudden, all over Texas, you saw a new Gonzales flag, and it still said, come and take it, except they took away the cannon and they put a gas stove. <laughs> My guess is people in Florida have a similar sentiment. Okay, the next story that informed what I wanted to speak about today uh, appeared in uh, NPR on February 1st. Federal regulators want to put new limits on late fees. So there is a rulemaking coming out of the Orwellian name Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that will engage in price controls and they have decided that under their authority under the CARD Act to decide whether or not costs are reasonable and proportional in air quotes, they've decided that it's $8. $8 is the late fee, notwithstanding that today the market's closer to 30 So besides the economics, meaning that people who pay their bills on time are now going to subsidize the bills of those who don't, in uh, what is a relatively brief rulemaking of 87 pages, we are now about to have federal price controls on late fees. Story number three. Upcoming SEC climate disclosure rules bring urgency to ESG data strategy planning. That was from Reuters of January 30th. So you may know that as the ESG battles set forth all across America, that the Securities and Exchange Commission has decided that now public companies are going to have to disclose greenhouse gas emissions, not just for them, but for those who are upstream and those who are downstream, the people they purchase their parts from and the consumers they sell them to. I know this is terribly unprofessional, but I just picked this off my iPhone. And so as part of the SEC rulemaking, public companies are now going to have to describe the acute risk the chronic risk to the registrant's business operations or the operations of those with whom it does business. 
You must describe the nature of the risk, the location of the risk, the nature of the properties, processes, operations, subject to fiscal ri physical risk down to the zip code specific level. Okay, I could go on and on. Oh, ex explain how each identified risk affects in the short term, the medium term, the long term, your business model, your outlook, the effects on business operations, on and on. Um, at a minimum, every public company now on an ongoing basis will probably have to spend somewhere between a half a million and a million trying to comply with amorphous rules that have ill-defined definitions. This in a 482-page rule issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission under their authority to decide what is necessary and appropriate in the public interest for the protection of investors. So ladies and gentlemen, we know that our nation continues to face many challenges, both foreign and domestic. Several of them have been spoken about today, but if you haven't gleaned it, as I read these three recent stories, these three recent, recent headlines, it made me once again want to focus on the rise of the administrative state and the threat that it presents to our prosperity and to our freedom. What do these stories have in common? They have in common that number one, they all represent bad economics. Number two, as I've already mentioned, they all represent a loss of our individual freedom. And I'd say for the purposes of my remarks today, alarmingly, they all represent consequential decisions made by people who are unelected and unaccountable to we, the people. As C.S. Lewis, the famous academic, and I guess you might say theologian as well, described the people who would be engaged in these rulemaking in a different time and in a different country, the UK. And he described these people as, quote, omnipotent moral busybodies who torment us for their own good with the approval of their own conscience. Okay, well, I thought that encapsulated it pretty well. But clearly, every single day, we face omnipotent, ubiquitous agency government, again, making our lives less prosperous, less entrepreneurial, less optimistic, and again, most importantly, less free. So let me talk a little bit first about economic prosperity. I would argue, as we look at our republic's history, we know how many people came here for political liberty, to be free of kingdom, crown, czar, emperor. We know people came to America for religious liberty, whether it was the Catholics, the Quakers, um, uh, others came here for religious liberty, but people also came here for economic liberty. And in fact, several of our colonies, if you may forget from history, Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, Virginia, they were not founded by the Crown of England. They were founded by private profit-seeking companies. Others like Pennsylvania and Maryland were actually founded by proprietors. And of course, the Dutch founded Manhattan. And although at the time they were a very religious people, historians 
uh, have written that once they set up their fort, once they set up their shops, they were so busy making money, it took them 17 years to build their first church. <laughs> you can derive your own implications about modern-day Manhattan from that. I'll, I'll leave that on your own. And at the, when America declared its independence, there was no nation on the planet that had greater GDP per capita than the United States of America. Prosperity is in our DNA. But unfortunately, something's happening to our entrepreneurial spirit. Something's happening to people who dream big dreams. And indeed, what we've seen is up until COVID, and COVID is a, is a, is a little bit of a, a change temporarily, but entrepreneurship as measured by new small business startups has been at a 40-year low before COVID, which I think will prove to be an aberration as people were driven into their homes. They started new businesses. Otherwise, we've seen an ongoing 40-year decline. And then as I look at GDP growth in kind of the post-war era, I see GDP growth before President Reagan, and you had a number of years where America was growing at 5% GDP. And then I look at an America as we see the onslaught of the regulatory and administrative state, and I see that GDP falls, and the only 5% year we had is, again, the hockey stick that came from COVID. Now, why is all this happening? Well, economists at the University of Maryland have written, quote, the cumulative effect of regulations is a prime suspect and discriminates against new businesses by favoring established firms that have the experience and resources to deal with it. Correlation or causation? Listen to the words of Bernie Marcus, who some of you may know was the co-founder of Home Depot. He wrote a number of years ago, quote, having built a small business into a big one, I can tell you that today the impediments that the government imposes are impossible to deal with. Home Depot would never have succeeded if we tried to start it today. Every day you see rules and regulations from a group of Washington bureaucrats who know nothing about running a business. And I mean every day it's become stifling. And I just didn't hear it from those who founded very famous names and brands in large businesses. Back when I had the honor of representing the 5th District in the state of Texas in Congress, I had another small businessman who ran a small kind of industrial pipe shop, maybe employed 25 people, and he told me this, and I wrote it down. The greatest risk I worry about is that someday my business will be destroyed by OSHA, EPA, IRS, or the Department of Labor. This is not an exaggeration. The reason so many small business folks worry about these risks is that most of us know we cannot defend ourselves. A business that rightly or wrongly is the target of one of these agencies is completely outgunned in terms of resources. I had another small business person in my rural East Texas congressional district at a small cabinetry shop and apparently had to deal with some of the EPA regulations. 
on the use of different stains and chemicals. Even though his shop was profitable, he finally closed it down. Twelve people lost their jobs. And I asked him, well, if your business was profitable, why did you close it down? He said, Congressman, it just got to the point where I thought my federal government didn't want me to succeed. Let me move to the math portion now of my talk. What we see in Bernie Marcus, the two individuals from my old congressional district, are represented in a very sobering and dizzying array of numbers. Today and over the last 10 years, the federal government, the administrative state, is putting out an average of 70,000 to 90,000 pages of regulations each year. Those are the additions to the Code of Federal Regulation. If you've ever been to the archives in Washington and managed to see our foundational documents, the original Constitution was four pages long. So every year, the administrative state is putting out by a factor of 22,000 pages more than the Constitution, and that, as a matter of uh, order of magnitude, is 80 times larger than the Bible, 70 to 90,000 pages of regulations each year. Now, you may think, well, a number of these regulations surely are insightful by people who are quite knowledgeable. For example, there is OSHA regulation 191.0.23b subparagraph 11, that instructs businesses on the use of ladders. Quote, each employee must face the ladder when climbing either up or down. <laughs> okay, you paid for that insight. You may want to be writing this stuff down or right next to it. OSHA regulation 1910.23.b.12, each employee must use at least one hand to grasp the ladder when climbing. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, you are paying for that, and we laugh at it, but every business in America has to read these regulations, interpret those regulations, and for many small businesses that will never grow up to be big businesses, this is one of the reasons why. In the past 20 years, the budget for regulations has grown three times faster than our economy. It's grown eight times faster than the population growth. So whether you think we need more regulations because our economy is larger or because our population is larger, it's growing exponentially. The cost of the regulatory burden, and again, we're speaking about what this is doing to our economic prosperity, $2 trillion a year. Okay, if, if, if just our regulatory burden was a country of its own, it would be the eighth largest economy in the world between Italy and France, nations I love to visit, nations I would never want to live in. The burden is about $15,000 per household, specifically $14,684. The average American household spends more on embedded regulation than they do any other cost in the family budget save housing. 
It's approximately 17%. So this is what's happening. We're choking off entrepreneurship. We're choking off the future of economic growth. And again, there is no surprise that as the number of federal regulations increase, GDP declines, business startups decline. But beyond the damage that is done to American prosperity, we know that there is far greater damage done because the true cost cannot be measured in financial terms or in entrepreneurial terms. The true cost is far more profound, and that is the loss of our personal freedom. As the administrative state rises, due process, checks and balances, separation of powers, all cornerstones of our political liberty, they wane. And I'm sure everybody in this room is familiar with Madison's famous quote, there are more instances of the abridgment of the freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachment of those in power than by violent and sudden usurpations. And ladies and gentlemen, as the years, as the decades go on, I believe we are witnessing what Madison warned us about low those many years ago. Now, Madison was somewhat prescient. The rise of the administrative state probably dates back uh, to the Wilson administration. When at that point, a number of people in government decided they wanted to apply a new science to politics. So they wanted to have bureaus that were staffed by nonpartisan social scientists who could teach us how to eradicate all social ills because of their expertise. And in fact, a leading progressive mind of the day went on to be, I think, either the founder or editor of the New Republic. Herb Crowley said during the Wilson era that new agency government, quote, exercises an authority which is in part legislative and in part judicial. It is simply a convenient means of consolidating the divided activities of the government to certain practical social purposes. Well, James Madison had a decisively different take. As he famously wrote in Federalist 47, the combination of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. And so this form of tyranny, the roots were planted during the Wilson administration. They certainly bloomed during FDR's New Deal. They became overgrown in LBJ's great society. They exploded under President Obama, who had a phone and a pen, but seemed to lack a copy of the Constitution, and now it has reached crisis proportions under President Biden. So we've had a century-long progressive expansion of government that has unleashed this modern administrative state, which is extremely powerful, extremely intrusive, terribly opaque, baffling bureaucratic, distinctively un-Republican, and alarmingly unaccountable. Wasn't sure I could say that in one breath. I dare say even today that there are few exceptions to the rule that if you combined in any random fashion three or four letters of the alphabet, that they do not represent some government agency that are trying to take away your freedom and erode prosperity. B-L-M-F-E-R-C-F-S-O-C-C-F-T-C-E-P. You can play this game at home. Try it. 
Try it. Yeah, go on all day. But yet we know Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution states all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. Thus, when Congress delegates their fundamental legislative authority to unaccountable, unelected individuals, our constitutional rights are eroded. The people's right to self-government and due process is undermined. The citizens' right to carefully deliberate proposed legislation through their elected representatives is reduced to nothing more than a notice and comment period where bureaucrats are free to ignore the comments and suggestions and to also use them to retaliate against you. Again, I return to Madison, the, who wrote in Federalist 52, the definition of the right of suffrage is very justly regarded as a fundamental article of Republican government. Of government. But now we have elected legions, unelected legions of bureaucrats who've become legislator, cop on the beat, prosecutor, judge, and often compensated victim all rolled into one, and yet the public rarely knows their name. Increasingly, Americans are not governed by the rule of law. They are governed by the discretion of regulators. Ladies and gentlemen, we have heard about threats to democracy in America. This is the true threat to democracy in America. It is the rise of the administrative state. Now, there continues to be threats. And of the two major parties, unfortunately, we are seeing some threats coming from the Republican Party. Our former president, Trump, who was very happy to use his... Um, trade authority power uh, for um, uh, section 301, we call it, a trade authority uh, to put on various quotas and barriers and tariffs. Well, once he set up that system, then he created a system at the uh, trade representative's office to where people could apply to exclude themselves from that process. So we wanted supposedly to go to Washington and drain the swamp, but instead the swamp was filled with those. And ultimately, 6,804 exclusions by people who worked at the trade representative's office when they decide that something could cause, quote unquote, severe economic harm to the US. My guess is there was a legion of lobbyists, lawyers, and accountants who helped persuade these various people. And now we have Senator Hawley of Missouri, who now wants the Federal Trade Commission to decide whether or not media platforms can receive uh, liability protection based on whether or not, quote unquote, their activities ne negatively affect party and or viewpoint. That's being left up to somebody in the federal government. Recently, we had legislation that, that gave almost a trillion dollars of research and development money, uh, as well as citing money to the semiconductor industry. And um, Senator Rubio here in Florida said, the market will always reach 
uh, the most efficient outcome, but this can sometimes be at odds with the common good. Once again, somebody in government who would be unelected and unaccountable would get to decide these decisions. So this is some of the bad news, but there is good news, good news as well. The good news is that although difficult, the remedy is frankly easy to define. Number one, there's legislation in Congress known as the RAINS Act that would actually require Congress to vote on every major rule that is promulgated. No more letting it slip by by the unaccountable unelected. Now, the job's going to be a whole lot more difficult, but I can tell you from personal experience, um, we vote right now to rename post offices. So if members of Congress are going to be called upon to vote to rename post offices, I think they can make the ultimate decision whether or not you get to keep your, your stove. Second of all, I mentioned the Consumer uh, Financial Consumer Protection Bureau. Their budget does not come on a line item in the federal budget. They drew a line around it. They get their money from the Federal Reserve. Congress has no ability to impact their budget whatsoever. Step number two, every, every federal agency should be on budget so that elected members, and at least in the House, every two years you have the opportunity to either extend their contract or not. They should be reviewing that budget, the power of the purse, one of the most sacred responsibilities in Article I of the Constitution. So-called Chevron deference, fortunately it was rendered, it was wounded, I don't know if it's a lethal blow, but the Supreme Court in West Virginia v. EPA has done it substantial damage, but this was the legal doctrine where if you wanted to contest what a federal bureaucrat was doing, the courts would put the burden of persuasion on you and would give deference to the federal agency. This needs to be formally repealed. And then frankly, how novel, once again, fealty to the 10th Amendment to the Constitution so that these federal powers will be limited and enumerated. So again, we have many threats. One of the threats is the administrative state it moves with, it moves slowly and sometimes silently, as we know. But it is not too late, and I want to thank you for being here and showing your commitment to liberty. Jefferson said, the people are the only sure reliance for the preservation of liberty. There is no think tank in America more dedicated to the preservation of liberty than the Cato Institute. And as we fight this fight against the administrative state, they're the ones providing the intellectual ammunition and the thought leadership so that once again, this will be the land of the free. Thank you very much. I was told that we have time for some questions and answers, but as a former politician, Peter, you knew I was going to speak too long anyway, so there might not be that much time. Well, they may let me off. No, there's a gentleman over there. Thank you, Jeb. 
As I said earlier, I'm Italian and I'm pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I do feel like I've got some sense of uh, understanding of finances. The Italians started Bank of America. What I wanted to ask you, Jeb, is you talked about reforming some of these agencies and stopping the rulemaking. Oh, I'm, I'm, oh, reducing the rulemaking, the RAINS Act. There's, there's all kinds of things. We even now a Holman Act now in, in Congress. My sense is these things, these agencies can't be reformed. Everything that they do in Washington almost is redundant in the states. I think we need to be thinking about, and maybe Cato should be the one that's the protagonist in this, shutting down things like the DO, the Department of Education, uh, OSHA, all these other agencies which are redundant. All we're doing is laying more regulations and, and more uh, uh, impediments to doing business on entrepreneurs, even big companies. Well, again, it's America. You can dream bold dreams. And great, I, well, no, and I, I don't mean to be facetious here. I have fought these battles before. And um, particularly as we see our educational institutions turned into institutions of indoctrination, the last thing I want in life is for some federal employee telling my wife and I how our, teach, how our kids should be taught. So I would love to get rid of the Department of Education. I see no role whatsoever for the federal government in that. Now, having said that, I, I can tell you when you're in the midst of that battle, sometimes you can work on these, these battles not for years but for decades. But you ultimately have to know what the goal is. And as Margaret Thatcher once famously said, first win the debate, then win the vote. And sometimes it's years and years and years in the making to be able to win the debate and move public opinion. But part of that is being able to have an idea, which is a better idea. Because yes, ideas have consequences, and indeed, um, elections have consequences. So I would say in some respects, if you can't get rid of some of these agencies and bureaus and departments, at least put them under control of those that you can fire. Because there is no federal bureaucrat in Washington you can fire. Step one. Anybody else? I think there's a gentleman in yeah. back there. After the, the broad description of the administrative state that you made with all the gory examples. Why don't policymakers and politicians, libertarian policymakers, make it clear that under these circumstances the country is under a communist attack that can only lead to a um, uh, authoritarian, tyrannical, Soviet-style state, because it's coming from all sides. You described one very important side. Well, regrettably, I guess I hearken back to the earlier answer, and that is it is still, it is still a battle that has to be won in the court of public opinion before it can be won in the halls of Congress. And I'd also say, again, hearkening back to my remarks, I mean, what you see with the rise of the administrative state, this isn't like um, 
you know, this isn't like the Soviet tanks rolling into Czechoslovakia in 1968. This is something that is gradual, pernicious, and mostly quiet. Occasionally we see something like the assault on our gas stoves and our kitchens. But it's the, it's the proverbial frog in the boiling water, whether he hops in when it's simmering and he gets boiled to death, or whether you throw him in when it's boiling, he hops out. So right now, a lot of the American people, the, this, this rise of the administrative state, circumscribing our freedoms, it's a gradual and pernicious process. And then finally, I would say it would be helpful if more new members of Congress would read the Cato Handbook for candidates for Congress, and maybe we would have better outcomes as well. I read it. Anybody else? I think there's another gentleman over there. Nope, I'm yes. sorry, one over there. <laughs> I, I have to admit that I'm a little uh, uh, pessimistic on the Senate side with the, uh, the, the loss of Pat Toomey and Ben Sass. You should be. <laughs> um, any, any room for optimism there? I mean, Rand Paul's still there, uh, but uh, Mitch McDaniels just chose not to run. Uh, any optimism on your part? Oh, I, I, absolutely so. I still think there are a number of, of people who are very committed to capitalism, to freedom, to the Constitution. Several new members. Um, now, it's going to take a while to, to distinguish themselves. But yes, the loss of Pat Toomey, who I served with, we overlapped in the House. And in fact, I would call him really one of my role models. Uh, so that's a huge loss to the Senate, as has been Sass. Uh, so I'm more familiar with the House, obviously, than the, the, the Senate, but I don't think that we lacked for talent. We may lack for effectiveness. And again, elections have consequences, and I only touched upon it a little bit, but, you know, in order to do battle with the forces of the administrative state, the forces of gradual socialism, we only have two major political parties. The Republican Party, imperfect as it is, is the political conduit for what many of us believe in in this room. And it's having an internal debate whether or not it's going to be a party of populism and protectionism and nativism and big government conservatism. And so I think there's going to have to be kind of a family feud that is reconciled before we can get on to the main business um, and doing even more uh, combat with those whose ideas are totally inimical to our own. But it's something that makes me nervous, but I would, there's a lot of things that keep me up to, at night. The lack of a good bench of freedom-loving members of Congress is not one of them. Anyway, I see the hooks coming. Thank you.